Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast once again on this November 22nd. From our family to yours, thank you for uh, having us be a part of your weekly routine as we usher in the Sabbath, as we hear from the Word of the Lord and worship together. Um, with this free broadcast, we always ask that if you are blessed by this broadcast, if the Lord would stir in your heart, you can make a donation at llgive.com and make a donation to the ministry. As we're closing out the end of the year, we have one more event for 2019. We have our Hanukkah conference that's held here in Norman, Oklahoma. You can register your family at HanukkahEvent.com, and we hope that you join us for that on December 27th and 28th. Teens and children are free for that event, so we want to encourage uh, you and your family to come and be a part of that and to enjoy and celebrate together um, at that time. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have a wonderful Sabbath. Now, let us set apart this Sabbath and the week with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family, and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing Amen. over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, 
Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Adonai Hamvorach, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha, Nedahar Bachudesh, Nohorat Echilot, Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Veshamu Vene Israel et Hashabat, La Sot et Hashabat, Ladrotam, Barit Olam, Bene Ovayom, Bene Israel, Othit Leolam, Keshashet Yamim Asadonai, et Hashamayim, Vet Haret, Vayom Hashavi, Shabbat, Vainafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha, v'shinantam l'avanecha, V'tepardabam b'shiftecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totafot b'inenecha, u'chetavtam ha'mazuzo b'techa, uv'sharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Joyful noise. 
Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parasha Chaye Sarah. Genesis chapter 23. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Avraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Avraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Chet, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Chet answered Avraham, saying to him, Here is my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Avraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Chet. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish... For me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Chet, and Ephron the Hitti answered Avraham in the hearing of the sons of Chet, even all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. 
and Avraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Avraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Avraham listened to Ephron, and Avraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Chet, four hundred shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of its border were deeded over. To Avraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Chet before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Avraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Avraham for a burial site by the sons of Chet. Chapter 24 Now Avraham was old and advanced in age, and Adonai had blessed Avraham in every way. Avraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please, place your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by Adonai, the Elohim of heaven and the Elohim of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite, among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Yitzhak. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. Adonai, the Elohim of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Avraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of goods of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when the women would go out to draw water. He said, Adonai, the Elohim of my master Avraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Avraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Yitzhak, and by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rivka, who was born to Betuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Avraham's brother Nahor came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether 
Adonai had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Betuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped Adonai. He said, Blessed be Adonai, the Elohim of my master Avraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, Adonai has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rivka had a brother whose name was Lavan, and Lavan ran outside to the man at the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he had heard the words of Rivka, his sister, saying, This is the man, this is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come, come in, blessed of Adonai. Why do you stand outside since I've prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Lavan unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Avraham's servant. Adonai has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanite in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife from my son. I said to my master, Suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, Adonai, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you to make your journey successful, and you will take a wife for my son, for my relatives, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives, and if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, Adonai, the Elohim of my master Avraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, Behold, I am standing by the spring, and may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw, and to whom I say, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And she will say to me, You drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom Adonai has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rivka came out with her jar on her shoulder, and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Betuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists, and I bowed low and worshipped Adonai, and blessed Adonai, the Elohim of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Levan and Betuel replied, The matter comes from Adonai, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rivka before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as Adonai has spoken. When Avraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before Adonai. 
The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rivka. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us for a few days, say ten. Afterwards, she may go. He said to them, do not delay me since Adonai has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rivka and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rivka and her nurse with Avraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rivka and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rivka arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and departed. Now Yitzhak had come from going to Be'er Lahai Roi, for he was living in the Negev. Yitzhak went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rivka lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Yitzhak, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Yitzhak all the things that he had done. Then Yitzhak brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rivka, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Yitzhak was comforted after his mother's death. Chapter 25. Now Avraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Midan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheva, and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, and Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, and Efer, and Chanok, and Avida, and Elda'ah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Now Avraham gave all that he had to Yitzhak. But to the sons of his concubines, Avraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Yitzhak eastward to the land of the east. These are all the years of Avraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Avraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Yitzhak and Yishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hitti, facing Mamre, the field which Avraham purchased from the sons of Chet, where Avraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Avraham that Elohim blessed his son Yitzhak, and Yitzhak lived by Be'er Lahai Roi. Now these are the records of the generations of Yishmael, Avraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Avraham. And these are the names of the sons of Yishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaiot, the firstborn of Yishmael, and Kedar, and Avdil, and Mivsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Maasa, and Hadad, and Temah, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael by their names, by their villages, and by their camps. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. In Parashah Chayesarah, we see that Avraham sends his servant to retrieve a bride for his son Yitzhak. In verse 58, we see, So they called Rivka and said to her, 
are you going with this man? And she said, I shall go. And Rivka, she's the bride. And she responds immediately. Slow obedience is disobedience. Rivka has been called out to go and meet her bridegroom. She's accepted the call, but now she must make the decision of immediate obedience to that call or to act in the disobedience of hesitation and procrastination. Rivka agreed to leave everything she had ever known in order to join herself to her bridegroom. If we were to speak of this story in symbolic terms, Yitzhak represents Messiah, the groom, longing to be joined with his bride. The servant of Abraham represents the Ruach, the spirit, wooing the bride to come into the presence of the groom. Abraham represents the father, who sends his servant, the spirit, to help the bride join the groom. Rivka represents us, the bride of Messiah, with whom the groom desires to be intimate. Finally, Sarah's tent that Yitzhak brings Rivka into represents the temple and the Torah. If we view this passage in this fashion, then we can see that the Ruach is guiding the bride into an intimate relationship with Messiah under the framework of spiritual obedience to the Torah. Rivka, the example of the bride, heard the call of her groom and willingly went to him, casting all else aside and pursued her marriage to him without concern of those things that she had formerly been concerned with. Are we emulating the example set for us by Rivka? Are we willing to abandon all we previously knew in order to enter into our groom's presence? Or are we still holding on to our former concerns, lusts, anxieties, and passions? Are we making ourselves ready for him? Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 7 say, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For Adonai our Elohim, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Like Rivka, do we respond when we hear the voice of our bridegroom calling for a righteous bride? Are we diligently striving to enter his kingdom? Will we be obedient to his ways and his instructions? Or will we fail to hear his voice over the din and chaos of our lives that we so often obsess ourselves with? Will we perhaps render lip service by answering immediately when we hear his call, but then delay in our actions by procrastinating? Will we shema? Will we hear and do? Will we respond immediately as Rivka did? Will we embrace his call and respond with immediate obedience? We must answer the call of the master. We must strive to enter into his kingdom through observing his ways and being obedient to his instructions. Our bridegroom returns soon. He only tarries a short while in order that more may hear his call and respond. Even so, come quickly, Master Yeshua, come. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the first book of Kings. Uh, this Haftor portion that goes with Hayasera has an intriguing connection 
to the story of Sarah, and I want to share with you just very briefly uh, why uh, the sages have included this portion to go along with that. Part of it has to do with um, that at the death of Sarah, there becomes something very apparent uh, which has been building and developing. That is that Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael. He had Isaac. We know that the birthright blessing was extended to Isaac, and a choice was made by God that through Isaac would the descendants and the blessings continue on from the father Abraham. In this story of the Haftor, we have an issue of David's sons. Uh, we have a particular son, which is Adoniah, who is the brother, the younger brother of Absalom, uh, and the mother was Haggith of, of that. And there's that son versus Bathsheba, and her son was Solomon. And David is coming to the end of his life, and he is going to be called upon here to make a clear determination of who will be king of Israel and uh, between uh, the first son or between Solomon. So part of the reason why we have this portion is it deals with the subject of uh, Abraham having two sons, but one son is chosen for the blessing. Uh, David had many sons, but one son is chosen to be king of Israel. That's part of it. There's some other little nuances that we'll point out to you in this. Now, I have to tell you before I begin to read uh, from this Haftor portion, the very first part of this Haftor portion has one of the most intriguing um, descriptions in biblical history given to us. And in fact, um, as I read through this, I'm certain that you're going to have the same questions that I have and other uh, people who have studied the scriptures is what in the world is this story about and what in the world is going on? It's about King David when he becomes aged in his years. Let me read to you beginning from 1 Kings uh, chapter 1 where it says the following. Now King David was old, advanced and aged, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servants said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in, in your bosom, that my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all of the territory of Israel and found Avishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. In other words, it specifically says he didn't marry her, and he didn't have conjugal rights with her. He didn't have sexual relations with her. Now, Adonia, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. Now, before I go further in the story, let's go back and let's talk about what in the world is this thing about this young virgin coming in to cuddle up to King David? What in the world is this all about? How does this add into all of this? And why in the world do we even have this story in the scripture? You know, King David had 18 wives. And um, so the question is, well, what was the real medical condition here? What, what was really going on? Obviously, in his advanced age, he had some sort of cardiovascular problem. In other words, his blood vessels weren't working to his extremities well enough to circulate blood and thus warm his body. He probably had sufficient warmth for the core of his body, for his vital organs. 
but not sufficient for its extremities. And for those of you who I won't say have advanced to advanced age, as the Bible talks about here, but let's say you have some age. Uh, you do know that, uh, you know, your feet tend to get colder. Sometimes your hands get colder the older you get. You can't, and, and that's kind of the same condition. Your circulatory system is not allowing enough blood flow, uh, in there and to those muscles to keep them warm, uh, for it. And when you have that constriction of that flow and so forth, well, you have the tendency to have the feel that you're cold. Now, most of us, you know, will cover ourselves you know, with blankets and socks and other things like that. And what heat is in our body will be retained. In other words, clothing and coats and blankets, it helps you to retain the heat. Um, uh, It's your own body heat, and how fast is it escaping from you that is the effect that we're talking about here. A normal, healthy person has sufficient circulatory flow to keep them warm, and if you put clothing on, you can get too warm. You know, and so, but as you get older, you kind of need to cover up more. You'll see ladies, uh, older ladies, wanting a sweater to stay warm. You'll see men wearing a vest, you know, a sweater vest. It keeps them a little warmer. Um, uh, and always wearing socks and, and things to snuggle in and stay warmer because of your own circulatory system. Well, apparently King David had this problem. And it was sufficient that even though he put clothes on and whatever they had in those days of warm socks and blankets, so it's still he still wasn't generating enough body heat to, to be warmed. In other words, that wasn't doing the job. He had to find some way to stimulate his cardiovascular system to get the blood to flow and, and so forth. And now this is the theory of the sages. The theory is that the reason why they proposed this instead of just a one of his wives or somebody else coming up and, you know, hugging onto his body and warming him. By the way, backpackers know about this. That when you go out in the woods and you're about to get hypothermia, what you have to do is you have to get huddled into a positioning, share body heat from one person to a person who's become too chilled. You share body heat. That's how you revive a person from hypothermia. Well, they knew they wanted to get body heat into the into King David to warm him. So why didn't they just go get one of his 18 wives? Why didn't, you know, Bathsheba, for example, or Haggith, or why, why didn't one of them come and cuddle with him? I mean, they're married, and that would have been, you know, kind of appropriate. But instead, these advisors and counselors called for a young virgin. So you got to ask the question, what in the world is that all about? What, why is that? And the theory goes like this. Um, it is a fact, and uh, there's not a man that will dispute me on this, that when a man, and I don't care what age you are, uh, when a man sees a young, attractive, virgin lady, and we're talking about, you know, in the, in the late teens and as in early womanhood, there's an automatic wired-in reaction into a man that it will draw out a sense of physical attractiveness attractiveness to it and it will raise his blood pressure rate and it will raise his heartbeat rate and it will actually stimulate his circulatory system it is a fact it's a medical fact now obviously you know the scripture teaches us as godly men uh, to be pure in our thoughts that we don't allow any of that to go toward lust or you know and impure 
thinking and stuff like that. But it is a physiological fact that a man will be stimulated uh, by such things. And that's the reason why models and so forth, every man takes no, I don't care how long you've been married, wives know about this. You know, their guy's been married happily to his wife for years. They're walking down, and all of a sudden, a beautiful girl comes walking by, and guess what his eyeball's doing? And he, you know, he tracks, you know, as she walks by. The wife's always getting upset, but it's a natural. Men are hardwired to do this. I mean, this is the way God made us. There's actually some very good reasons why God did this. Um, the, the, the sexual attractiveness is one of the most powerful things in in the hardwiring program of a man that is stimulates him to be a husband and a father if if he didn't have this he might go out and father children and he'd just say forget the family forget it and so forth um the the reason why a lot of men get married i'm, I'm serious and i've done a lot of premarital counseling the reason why a lot of men get married is it's the socially acceptable way to have sex on a regular basis is the socially accepted way. Uh, and so we do it. But but the, it's because it was a great need that God put within the man to procreate uh, and so forth. So I think the sages say that what they were doing was they were playing on the physiological facts of David's life. And they were trying to bring something in that would stimulate him. Now, the question is, well, weren't they tempting him? Weren't they put, you know, this is a godly man. He's the king of Israel. From him, his descendants will come the Messiah. What in the world were they thinking? Didn't God make a covenant with uh, David? They justify this by saying that the reason why they did this, and they believe that David would be faithful throughout this, is because of the sin that David committed with Bathsheba. And that he had repented from that. He had learned his lesson. In fact, he had lost the first son that he had had uh, with Bathsheba. Solomon was his second son. And that from the loss of the first son and his repentance, and by the way, we have in the Psalms, we have David's Psalms of repentance from that, which sets a great example for us of repentance, that they believed that God had, in fact, had forgiven him and that had established a relationship. This is a wonderful story in that regard because there's a lot of us who have gone out and sinned in our lifetimes. Some of us before we even came to know the Lord, and there's always this lingering feeling or thought that after you become a believer and you start walking with the Lord, well, what about my past? Will my past come up and haunt me and, and prohibit me from being able to serve the Lord and stop me and, and things like that? And David is a shining example of how he went out and did egregious sin. In fact, he committed uh, uh, effectively adultery for what we know. He caused Uriah, her husband, to be killed, sent him into battle, essentially murdered him. When Nathan confronted him, he was charged with stealing a sheep. He was a thief and charged with that. So it's a it's grievous sin. And and the judgment that came upon him was the loss of the life of his son the, when he had impregnated her. Uh, and God saw that, or, or David saw that as God's judgment upon him and repented of those things, and yet God continued to establish his covenant with with King David, 
and set it as the standard for the throne of the Messiah himself and uh, the kingdom to him represent the kingship of the Messiah. Uh, so it, it gives us great hope. So this is part of the rationale behind why the advisors thought this was an acceptable thing to do because they were confident that David's heart was right before the Lord and all they're trying to do is warm him. They're just trying to get him some comfort uh, when he was unable to do it despite the number of blankets and other things they were trying to minister to him. So this kindness being extended to David uh, goes beyond uh, what we would call the morally acceptable. I mean, if any of our brethren, uh, it was suggested, well, let's have him go lay with a little virgin, you know, and so he feels warmed, we'd, we'd all freak out. I mean, I, I dare to say I, I wouldn't counsel for that. Uh, but here we have this story in 1 Kings 1 right off the bat. Now, you got to ask yourself, since the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, is all of these incredible stories that begin with Solomon and all the other kings that will be of Israel and of Judah and the stories of the kings, uh, you have to ask yourself, why start with this story for the story of kings? And part of it has to do with, the sages say, that kings are in fact treated differently than other people. And we treat kings differently than other people. The same thing is said of the ruler of our land. For example, the president of the United States. I can assure you that if the president were to come to your home, even though you may not agree with him politically and so forth, you would render to him great respect. You would probably, if he got to have lunch with you at your house, you probably would pull out your best dinnerware. You probably would try to put on an excellent meal just to show hospitality. It's a natural thing that we honor the ruler of a land or a king in such a way. And so the book of Kings goes through and talks about uh, all these different kings. And these were special people who were rendered special honors to do God's will for God's people. And that's what we look to when we have a ruler of our land. We look for this person to be anointed of God, empowered and strengthened by God, inspired by God so that he can do good to the nation and to the people of the land. And regardless of our political affiliation uh, that we may have, agreement as to who we voted on or didn't vote on, we still render these honors uh, to it. And so the book starts with a special honor being given to the king of Israel. And it sets the, uh, the stage thereafter. Now, the portion will go on into explaining the conflict between uh, one of David's sons and David having to make the decision to publicly announce Solomon to be king. Now, at this particular time, Adonia is, as I said, is a grown man. Uh, he's the brother, younger brother of Absalom. If you remember the story of Absalom, Absalom rose up in rebellion against his own father, and he was chased down, and his hair got caught in the tree, and he was killed in, in, in that conflict. Uh, so this fellow, who was the younger brother of him, he probably grew up in a home, and he saw the example of Absalom and his rebellion against his father, David, and he may have, um, you know, that may have influenced him to some extent to be presumptive and to do things he shouldn't have done. Let me continue to read here because it describes a little bit of the relationship between King David and his son, 
And so let me uh, just read a little bit further for you. Verse 5, uh, Adonia, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. By the way, this was the custom of a king of the land in the ancients. He would have runners run in front of it. Let me tell you, this was a very special thing. These runners did not run with sandals on. These were men who were specifically trained. They ran barefoot over the ground or over the road before the chariot would go for the king. In a, in a sense, they would put their flesh against the ground to lay a path. It's a little bit like our version of rolling out a red carpet. You know, if you had a dignitary come and you roll the red carpet out, well, he was like had this mobile red carpet of honor that went before him. The 50 men that were running before him, it was kind of like, that's the red carpet thing. That's his procession. That's his entourage uh, that would be showing. And it's a way of announcing to all the people, great honor is, is coming to the person who's following on that. Verse 6, and his father never crossed him at any time by asking, what have you done so? Or why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. Now, that phrase, he never crossed him at any time asking, why have you done so, seems to indicate that King David <clears throat> was never involved in any of the discipline. He, King David was never like the trainer. He did not train his son up. Uh, by giving him specific attention. King David was never bringing his son into question, never challenging, never specifically training. The entourage, the other people around King David's life and the mother apparently were responsible for raising up the son, but he had the honor of being the son of King David. And this lends itself to maybe why um, he felt that he could get away with what he was doing. That if he asserted himself that King David, his father, was not going to call him a question, wasn't going to take issue with him. And he thought, well, if, if, if my father, King David, is not going to protest me announcing myself as king, well, then nobody else is going to take issue with me. And that appears to be what his thinking was, that he was, shall we say, highly presumptive. He presumed because of his upbringing that King David would in no wise object to what he was doing. And so it announces what Adonia decided to do, how to make himself king of Israel. And so he, it says here, verse 7, And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and with Avithar, the priest, and following Adonia, they helped him. Now, who in the world is Joab, the son of Zeruah? Azariah, that is the head of the army of Israel. He is the general of all of the Israeli army, you know, at that time. And Abithar is a leading priest, a candidate to be high priest, if, if not thinking he was high priest at the time. So he's gone to the commander of the, gen of the army He's gone to the high priest. He's pretty much covered the bases of all of the powers to be, and he's gotten them to cooperate with him. So this guy was political. He goes and he gets, you know, his forces lined up. Who in the world is going to challenge him now? 
you know, at this point. He's got the, the army behind him, and he's got the religious authority behind him, he thinks. And so he proceeds to do this, but there's certain other people he does not select because he knows they are definitely in support of King David, staunchly in support of King David, and he cuts them out. And verse 8, it says, But Zadok the priest, Beniah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonia. So who is Zadok the priest? Well, he is also a priest, a highly respected priest. He is a candidate for high priest. Um, and Benaiah, the son of uh, Jehoiada, he is the chief judge of the Sanhedrin court. So he's like chief justice of the whole Supreme Court of Israel. So these are very prestigious leaders in Israel. And then Nathan the prophet, you've heard of him before, and then Shammai, Ray, and the mighty men, those were the men like Uriah. These were the 33 mighty men of David that had helped him from the very beginning to make him king over all of Israel. They had gone into battle with him, and there are many stories of how they were, they were champions within the army of Israel. They weren't the commanders, but they were like the personal division of champions within the army of Israel. Uh, that had served King David. They had been committed to him for years, uh, personally committed. They all joined. So, so there's this very powerful, shall we say, political group that's in support of King David that Adonia has decided to cut out. He's decided to remove. I'm not going to draw them into my, I'm going to go with these and get them to agree with me, and we're just going to cut these other guys out. So he holds this feast. He doesn't invite them, but he invites everybody else. By the way, that's a pretty good indicator socially. Where do you fit in the structure? If, uh, like for right now in the United States, we have President-elect Trump. You know, he's going to be inviting people to the White House, inviting to various dinners with him. By the way, there's a whole bunch of people who have opposed him from the beginning, been mouthing off in public saying nasty things about him, what do you think their chances are that they're going to get invited to the White House dinner in the future years with the president? I doubt it. I doubt it. And because that's the way political things work. And so we have this dynamic going on here in this conflict. Uh, verse 9, And Adonia sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoheleth, which is beside Enrogeth, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, all the men of Judah, and the king's servants. And he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the, uh, and the Benaiah and the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. Now, holding this feast is a typical political uh, rally. Uh, you know, the guy who's the candidate. He sets up this thing and invites everybody to it, and they all get the benefit of it. You know, he decided to have this giant feast. We're all going to come and eat together and have a big banquet together. I'm going to announce that I'm king. You guys are all going to herald me as king, and, boy, we're going to have a big party, and, 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 and we'll send the message to everybody in the land, hey, 
whoever's anybody, they've already said that he's king, and that, that's where I'll become king. Does that sound like the anointing of the Lord? No, it sounds like he's a man pleaser. It sounds like he's a man who wants to be king, and he thinks the way to do that is have everybody agree with him. Whereas David was anointed to be king, you know, by Sam, you remember? And that's the way God establishes leadership. Let me just for a moment speak to some elementary principles of spiritual leadership. There are a lot of people who go into the ministry and go to serve the Lord who have good hearts. They have a desire to serve God. They have a desire to serve the people. And they think because I have a good desire to do it, well, then I'm just going to step up and I'm just going to start doing it. And they don't really have that relationship with God where God said, I'm choosing you and I'm anointing you to go and serve. They kind of skip that part. They look instead for the people when they go out, for the people to recognize them and submit to them, and that's how they assume their position. They don't have a testimony of being anointed by the Lord, called by the Lord to go and to do something. And as a result, they always end in conflict with brethren and with the Lord. The Lord didn't call them to go do that. And they, but they think that's the way you do this stuff. Adonijah said, I want to be king of Israel. I intend to do good things to Israel. Um, I am the son of David. I think I'm entitled. You know, everything is I, I, I. Okay? But when you're anointed, you don't make that decision. Somebody else makes the decision to anoint you and appoint you and send you to the task. Solomon didn't stand up and say, hey, I want to be king of Israel. He was anointed to be king of Israel, determined by other people, determined by the prophet uh, Nathan, determined by God, determined by his own father, King David. That's the anointing that was put upon Solomon. And so what you have in this story is uh, uh, then the people who hear what Adonai, uh, Adonia, I should say, what he is saying and doing, Nathan the prophet goes to Bathsheba and says, Bathsheba, you've got to go talk to King David. Uh, and, and here's the reason why. In ancient times, what would have stopped Adonia after he became king and took over from going and killing Solomon? Or Bathsheba, for that matter. Because in the ancient times, that's how the succession of kings happened. If you were, if you were a son, an heir to a former king, and then he lived a long time and then died, whoever the heir was that came with, guess what they did? He killed all his brothers off. He killed off so he wouldn't have any competition. He wouldn't have anybody coming back later on to him laying claim to his thing. And then he could start his own line, and then the whole thing would turn into another mass murder. And so that's the way the world does things. That's the way the world does it. And so Nathan is wise enough to say, oh, my goodness, this is what we could be starting. And Bathsheba, your life is at danger. Solomon's life is at danger. You've got to go to King David. You have to tell him what's going on. By the way, you go and speak with him first. Then I will come and I will speak with him as well. And let's, let's plead with David. He's got to do something here. He's got to resolve this one way or the other. And essentially, the rest of our story, that's what happens. Bathsheba comes and says, do you, do you not know 
what Adonia has said and done, that he will be king. And, and then she says, do you realize that we will, I and your son Solomon, we will be declared sinners as a result. Now, that's a very interesting expression that it used here in the scripture for it. Consider defenders. It's verse 21. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my Lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. Another term there is sinners. Now, let's go back for a moment and let's think about what she's talking about. Uh, if you remember, Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite, and she entered into this relationship with King David. You could charge her with adultery. And you could claim that her son is an offspring of sin. So you could declare them all as sinners. The only reason why they're not is because of what God did with King David. Now, if King David is out of the way and this other son wants to get rid of him, he's got a perfect excuse, a perfect reason why they should be eliminated. And so she's talking about, look, we will be charged with what has happened historically in the past and we will probably lose our lives out of the course of it. So that's what she presents to King David. And Nathan the prophet enters also and confirms what Bathsheba has just said so that David now understands. Well, David immediately calls for all of those that had come. He calls for the chief judge. He calls for um, uh, Zadok the priest. And they go to the springs of Gihon. And there Solomon is anointed king and proclaimed to be king. And, and all of a sudden there's a great celebration in the city. The king has been anointed and so forth. And the other party that was outside the city, not inside the city, it suddenly hears about this sound. And as the story goes, uh, Adonia, or uh, Adonia rather, I keep saying the wrong name, Adonia literally is in panic, and so is everybody else that was associated when they're all scattered, you know, because the king, I guess, is not quite as old as we thought he was. I mean, he's officiating this thing, um, and they're fearful of what the king, in fact, will do because it appears to be rebellion against King David. In fact, it was. Um, and uh, so they flee, and Adonia actually goes to the temple, hooks himself to the altar and refuses to leave the altar because he fears that he's going to be killed, summarily killed. Well, Solomon doesn't do that at all. He releases him and allows him to go and live uh, from it. But this is the incident. This is how Solomon is established. Solomon is established as king of Israel uh, by the anointing, by, by, the, by the prophecy that was given to King David. And thus we have the messianic line of the king, of the sons of David being established at this point. Um, I want to make one mention of one other place. The, the scripture tells us that where Adonia went to was a place outside the city. And it was a well-known place. It was a prominent place. It was an honorable place. And he chose that as to where he was announcing that he'd be king. He wanted to make that special. However, David took Solomon down to Gihon, which is the lowest part of the of, of Jerusalem, where the springs of Gihon are at. By the way, those are the springs that also supplied water to the temple, Gihon. So he wants water, the symbol of eternal life, 
the symbol of the living waters, the waters that will be used in the temple service, he wants him anointed there uh, to show that it's God's anointing on him to be king over all of Israel. And David also makes another statement. He says, he shall be king after me and he will sit on my throne. And there's a lot of explanation about those two phrases. King after me means he's my son and he will become king. But on the throne that is after me, he's making reference to God's covenant with him, that God said that he would establish the throne of David, that there would never lack a man to sit on that throne. And obviously that's a messianic prophecy speaking of the eternal Messiah, the son of David. Who And he said Solomon will be part of the messianic line. So he's making that bold proclamation, not only that he's going to be king, but that he will be part of this messianic line that will lead to Messiah Yeshua. So this is a powerful portion about choosing God's choice over man's choice, about how God chose Isaac over Ishmael and what will all follow. And this is about how Solomon was chosen to be king as opposed to Adonia or one of the other sons of David. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this portion. Thank you for the instruction in the scriptures. We ask, Lord, for your most holy blessing upon us as we learn about these things. And we thank you, Lord, for the redemption and for the kingship of our Messiah, Yeshua, the son of David. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, where we will begin our Brit Hadashah teaching for this week. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time and this teaching, uh, for this week and this Sabbath. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged and uplifted here on this Sabbath as we once again study your word and your teaching and your instruction. We bless you and we thank you for all of these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our Torah portion this week is Chaya Sarah, which obviously um, is the story after the death of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the mother of Isaac. This was after the Akidah, the binding of Isaac, and we always believe that there was some connection to the fact that Isaac was being taken up to be offered back to the Lord, and that word had may have gotten back to Sarah, and that this might have been one of the things that contributed to her untimely death. In our Torah portion, uh, in Genesis chapter 23, we have the story by which Abraham purchases the piece of ground that would become Machpelah, that would be where the tomb of the patriarchs would be, where Abraham would be buried, Isaac and Jacob also, along with their wives, would be buried at this location. But the majority of our teaching uh, comes in Genesis 24, where we have the story of Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, going to seek to find a wife, a bride, who would be Rebekah for Isaac after the death of his mother. And we know that this entire process was all done so that Isaac would be comforted in the loss of his mother. And there's a great story and there's an amazing parallel to the work of the Holy Spirit, to what Eliezer did in seeking the wife for Isaac. But before I get into that, I want to start in the book of 2 Corinthians, and I want to bring a couple of passages out that are encouraging to us whenever we might be in any period of mourning. 
We have to remember that Isaac and Abraham, they were mourning at this time for the loss of their loved one, the the beloved wife of Abraham, that it was through her seed would the child of promise, Isaac, be born. And Isaac, obviously having the loving relationship that any son has with his mother, um, that in that loss, there is a great deal of sadness, mourning, and that there needs to be comfort given to anyone who ever loses a loved one. This is something that can be spoken at any time of the year because we all, sometime, in our lives, we all face death every once from time to time. Loved ones pass away. Grandparents, parents, family members, good friends. People pass away from time to time, and we need to understand how to be comforted in those times of mourning. Unfortunately, I've had the honor to do certain, uh, uh, several funerals, and we had to, I had to, uh, bury a good friend of mine who was a young man who came to Camp Yeshua a number of years, and he was a firstborn son. He was 21 years old who died tragically in a boating accident, and I had to come up with what, what do you say in a funeral for somebody who dies at such a young age to comfort the family? And one of the things that we learn throughout the course of our life, and anyone who does the work of ministry, is that there are no words that truly can be said by a person to another person that will truly bring comfort. There might be something of reason that might give a fleeting moment of comfort, but for the most part, it's all on the Lord's hands to bring that peace that only he can provide. In the case of someone who lost a firstborn son, you make the connection to the Messiah and you make the connection to God, our Heavenly Father, who he himself suffered the loss of a firstborn son, the Messiah himself. And that you, you find that, that parallel, that, that comfort that comes through shared testimony that can sometimes happen. Here in Second Corinthians, at the beginning of the passage, we do have some of those encouraging words. To be comforted by the Lord in times of trials, tribulations, suffering, mourning, anything like that. Let me begin at verse 3 of Second Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, It is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake in the consolation. God is the one who brings the comfort and that through sufferings and trials and tribulations comes greater things, comes the testimony of salvation, comes the testimony of consolation, of overcoming those times of sorrow. And that's when somebody has lost a loved one and then you can go and speak directly into the life of somebody else who is suffering with a loss or more and in a time of mourning that we too can bring that comforting through our testimony with one another. And all of these things lead to the edification for us who are the believers. 
for us who are continuing to grow in our spiritual faith. We're continued to, these trials come, these tribulations come, people die, people live. We go through all of these things, yet we are in the constant state of being matured and grown in the way the Lord would have us to grow spiritually in our walk, and that through all of this, God is glorified in all of these things. Another passage that is traditional for connecting to this Torah portion as well, you've got to go backwards one, uh, one book into 1 Corinthians, back to chapter 15, where it talks about God's ability to overcome death. And so let me read now here, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting at verse 50, where it says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, for this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast through all things that come. When Even when we suffer the loss of a loved one, that we have the hope and we have the knowledge knowing that God is the God of the living and that he has the power over death. Because the Messiah himself was risen from the dead. And we are looking forward to the time in the future when the dead will be raised, when they will not be corruptible anymore. That, and we have that promise from our scripture in multiple times and multiple places in scripture that the resurrection will come. That we believe in the power of the resurrection. This goes back to what I said last week about Abraham believing in the resurrection. That's why he was able to confidently go and take Isaac and bound him and lay and raise that knife. It's because he believed in the power of the resurrection. And that's something that we can believe in also even when we face death. When we are, we, we face that suffering, that trial, that mourning that we have a testimony and a hope of a God that has overcome death and that we should be steadfast, immovable through all things that happen because we are to be servants to the Most High God. Now, that takes us back to our story. We're talking about how Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, went out by faith to still serve his master, Abraham, in what he had asked them to do. Abraham had asked his servant. Now, in this passage, I should point this out in Genesis chapter 24, that his name is not actually mentioned. Eliezer, by name, is not mentioned. However, any Bible scholar worth his salt knows the servant of Abraham that went out to find the bride of Isaac was Eliezer. It was his most trusted servant. It was the man that he even mentioned before the birth of his sons that he was actually the one who would inherit Abraham's household. That's how close of a servant and how close Eliezer was 
to Abraham. Now there's amazing parallels in this entire passage of scripture of this servant, Eliezer, which the meaning of Eliezer's name is God is help or the helper of God, which has amazing parallels into it as well, that he was sent out by his master Abraham to go and find a bride for Isaac, the promised son. Now, as I'm describing it using those words, you might be starting to sense the parallel here, where the sending of the servant is to bring a bride to the promised son, in the same way that the servant, the helper, the comforter, is names that are given to and attributed to the Holy Spirit, the part of God that has gone into the world and is the one that goes and convicts us of all that Messiah has taught us and and has said to us, and that that is the work of the Holy Spirit that, of course, does these things. Before I get more into that, I do want to say this. In the course of the story, the servant goes out. There's the he, He recounts in excruciating detail multiple times exactly what Abraham said to him, exactly what he was to do. He prayed to God, and God answered his prayer as before he was even finished giving the prayer. He meets Rebecca along the way. That she comes and is going to uh, come to the well and going to gather water for her household. And Eliezer is there with ten camels. And she, of course, in the prayer, he says, may the girl come and offer to water the camels as well. And sure enough, Rebecca comes along. And that's exactly what she does. And that this is, then we have the entire exchange in Genesis 24 of Eliezer the servant speaking to the household of Rebecca and saying all the things that Abraham has sent him, that he has a son named Isaac. We're seeking a bride. I prayed to the Lord. This is what happened. Rebecca, you are that girl that I prayed for. And then asking her to come, to leave her house, to come and fulfill that role and that, um, basically that prayer that was prayed by Eliezer the servant. We have another passage that's traditional for this Torah portion. If you go with me to Luke chapter 9, we have the instruction that comes from the Messiah when he asked and when he accumulated some of his disciples to follow him, when he spoke of what one must do when it comes to uh, becoming disciples of the Messiah. Beginning at verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, we have this instruction of what it means truly to follow the Lord. This goes back to us when we learn how do we be steadfast, what is the work of the Lord like, what are we committing to when we say that we wish to serve the Lord. This is what is in in my New King James. It says here the heading for Luke chapter 9 at verse 57. It says the cost of discipleship, where now the passage begins. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you where I will follow you wherever you go. And the Messiah Yeshua said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first I must go and bury my father. Yeshua said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go first and bid them farewell who are in my house. But Yeshua said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is one of those things where it kind of seems like the Messiah is speaking kind of harshly to these men. When you're talking about that he's going to pull these men out, they're going to become his disciples to follow him and people wanting to follow and and follow after the Lord and follow after the Messiah. He's speaking very plainly. 
that this is an example of which if you're choosing to follow me, if you have the calling to preach the kingdom, you have to forsake all others in the process of doing that. This, of course, parallels back to once again last week when I talked about Lot's wife who looked back in the, in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and that she looked back desiring something that was left behind, but she was judged and turned into a pillar of salt because of it. If we are going to be followers of the Lord, then we have to be wholehearted and committed to that service, to that job, to what it is going to be. The Messiah made this very clear for those that were going to follow him, even to the point of that he ha- someone had to bury their father, put him in the ground, bring closure to that. But we also know that the Lord doesn't have any association with the dead things and things that are unclean, and that, no, if you're going to come and follow after him, then it's like, no, let the dead bury the dead. If you're going to go and bury your father, then you will be counted with him as if dead, in that you want to follow me, but you cannot also be associated with this death. And the other one, too, it says this. It's like, I want to follow you, but let, but let me at least say bye before I, before I go. And, the, and Yeshua said once again, it's all like, no, you cannot look back. If you continue to look back at what you had, then you are not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Look, there's a whole other layer to this teaching as well. And this goes to marriage counseling, that when two people married and they form a new covenant, a new family, a new household, that you have to, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother's house to cleave to his wife. And the wife as well. She then goes and cleaves to her husband. She's no longer under the covering of her family, of her parents, or any of those things. And for a good, strong marriage to happen, you have to create that separation. You must leave. You must leave your father's house. Now, this is, so there's a couple of layers to this teaching. One, if we're going to follow after the Lord, we have to have that level of commitment in following after him, following after his words, his ways. And when we're going to follow the words of the Messiah, look, there, the world is going to forsake you when you become a born-again Christian and start following after the Lord. They will call you crazy. They won't know what you're doing in any of, in any of those things. But if you're committed to it, you have to do it no matter what anybody else says. Same thing when it comes to anybody coming into the Messianic movement, starting to follow Torah. How many times have you started picking up Torah, trying to follow the law, trying to keep Sabbath, trying to keep kosher? But it's the members of your family that are the ones that are your biggest heartache telling you, oh, you're just trying to be a Jew or you've been Judaized or you're under the law and all of these things. And that the biggest conflict comes from your family. You know what some people have to do? You've got to separate from your family because if you're committed to following the Lord, obeying him, then you have to cut that off and follow him. So many principles to this. Now, the connection, of course, back to our tour portion is this. Rebecca was faithful to go with the servant, Eliezer, to leave her father's house. They were, her, her family members, her brother Laban, are all like, no, stay a little while. May, may you do this, do that. But Eliezer was on a mission. He was following what his master had said. And there is no reason, Eliezer has, has no reason to delay to obey his master. That's how good of a servant he was to his father Abraham. Now, also the other thing, too, is when he spoke, he spoke with the authority of his master Abraham. So when he's coming and he's speaking this, do you think Abraham's wanting to wait any amount of time for his son, Isaac, who is in mourning for the loss of his mother? And then we have found his bride as confirmed through prophecy, through prayer, that she's now to come and that we're going to delay this any further? Of course not. 
This is what needed to be done. Now, bless Rebecca for having that faith, the faithfulness to know that she is surrounded by the will of the Lord and she goes with the servant, Eliezer, back to the house. We, of course, have the amazing, the beautiful reunion at the end of our Torah portion in Genesis 24 when Isaac sees her, falls in love, and that they that she brings, that because Rebecca was brought by the servant, that... He was comforted after the loss of his mother. It says that specifically at the end of chapter 24 at verse 67. This is the whole goal, of course, is to bring that comfort. How is it that the Lord brings that comfort to us that we need in that time of suffering, in that time of loss? Now, if you would turn with me to the uh, Gospel of John, to chapter 14. This is one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture, and this is, of course, if, if you are familiar with the Scripture, you probably knew I was coming to this passage already with some of the things I had already said, by the fact that I related Eliezer, who means God is help, to the Holy Spirit himself. And this, of course, in John chapter 14, is when we have the Messiah telling the disciples about the Holy Spirit whom he called the helper, or some translations call the comforter or the advocate, and that these words all are pseudonyms for the Holy Spirit itself. John chapter 14, let's start at verse 15, these first uh, three verses here. It says this, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, That he may abide in you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he dwells with you, and will be with you, and will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Now, we're making the the connection here as, as the Messiah is speaking, and he's talking about, this is toward the end, he knows that he is going to, uh, sacrifice his life, so that we might all have eternal life. And this is when he begins to explain to the disciples of how he must go. He must go to the Father. But when he leaves, he he then speaks in mysteries where he says, I will come back to you. But he also says, the Lord will send a helper, will send all of these things. So he's introducing this idea, this concept of how the spirit of truth that the world cannot receive will come to you and you already know him. You already know him because you know the Messiah. Because the Spirit is who was in the Messiah as well. That they were all one and the same. When he says that the, uh, the, the Helper will come, I will leave, the Helper will come. And then he ends that whole verse, verse 18, it says, I will come to you. Wait, you just said you were leaving. No, the, the Spirit and the Messiah and God himself, these are all one. These are God manifesting himself in all of these different ways. But it's a, well, again, if you re- have a translation that says, I will give you the comforter that will come... Well, then we're talking about the death of the Messiah. We're talking about after the Messiah has died. How will we receive this comfort? Well, the comforter will come. And it, of course, is the Holy Spirit. It says there, I will not leave you orphans. Well, that's exactly what somebody is whose parents have died. That's what Isaac probably felt when he was in mourning for the loss of his mom. He felt like an orphan and he was in need of the comfort that would come that only the work of God would bring that comfort to one that was mourning for the loss of one's loved one. So then now let's skip ahead to verse 25 of John chapter 14. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to, give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I have it highlighted here in my scripture that when you think about, okay, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do for us? It says it right there. He will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all things I have said to you. Look, anytime that you feel like you've ever learned something from the, the scripture or that something has taught you, maybe a, a preacher stood on a stage one day and said something that was profound and changed your life. Or sometimes in your own study, we open up the Bible and something pops out to you that changes your life because you've read something a certain way that, that you've never seen before. Is that truly the power and the attribution of your ability to read those words or that, that the bravado of that preacher to be able to speak in great truths? No, of course not. Nobody attributes those things to one's fleshly strength. That, of course, is the work of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts you of something. Anything that you've ever been taught spiritually, were you taught it by the person, the lecturer, the professor, the preacher, the pastor, the counselor? Did they the, were they the ones that taught you? Or was it the conviction of the Holy Spirit inside your heart that taught you what you needed to know? Of course it was the work of God. That's why some people can hear the exact same teaching. You could listen to, to a pastor preach a certain word and somebody's blown away by it. And you go to the other friend and you're like, man, did, did you hear that? That was amazing. And they're like, yeah, it was okay. They obviously didn't impact. And you're like, did you hear what I heard? I heard this, this, and then they're like, yeah, why is that important? What that is, is that's the stirring of the spirit inside you of that, like something ministered to you that the Holy Spirit taught you, but didn't teach the person next to you. That is, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit. Anything spiritually we've ever learned was taught to us by the Holy Spirit, by the convicting of the Holy Spirit inside of our hearts, inside of our minds. And that what that does, if we have a testimony of Yeshua, of reading what he has said, the Holy Spirit causes us to remember what the Messiah has said. Now, for those of us who are Messianic, who have delved into the deeper Hebrew roots of our faith, we know that Yeshua himself taught Torah, that Torah was the words of the Messiah. That was the words that he taught. He taught us all of these things and all of this instruction. And that the Holy Spirit convicts us to know what is righteous, what is right and wrong according to the law of God. God gave us all of these laws. And all, on, all of them hang two, two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And that if you are operating in the Spirit of God, then you will be, the, be a keeper and a follower and a doer of Torah as good as anybody that's ever, whether you read it in the first five books of Moses or not, the Holy Spirit can lead you to follow those things. That's what the Spirit does. This is why he is the helper. This is why he is the servant of God. He goes and he operates and moves within the power and the authority of God and comes and gathers us. See, because that's what all of this teaching is for. All of the teaching that comes and all of this education that comes spiritually as we've grown in our spiritual walk, is so that we might be gathered up and drawn closer to God. That's the whole point. We want to get closer to God. 
Now, he's in the process of greater prophecies, gathering us from all nations. One day, we believe he'll draw us all back to the land, to the promised land, and we'll all be together, receive the inheritance, and we'll all be a part of the kingdom. And we know that that's all a future fulfillment. But in a spiritual sense, we are all being gathered to be closer to God. And how is that happening? Because the moves of the Holy Spirit have gone into the world to gather and regather all of God's chosen people. This is why the Holy Spirit stirs in the hearts of some people and not in others is because those people have a connection back to the covenant that we have with God. I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer of this. Never will this be able to be proved out until, until the Messiah, we're sitting in the kingdom and the Messiah says, yes, this is exactly what it was. Every single person that has either come out of the Christian church or Judaism or out of wherever they've been and they've heard some word, some instruction. And they've had a stirring in their heart to have a love for Israel, to keep the commandments of God, to have a testimony of Yeshua. And the ones, the people who've come out of the church and who say, I'm just not getting fed there. And, and, and they find new truths in starting to follow Torah. It would not surprise me if truly every single person that has had their heart stirred in that way, whether they were young when it happened or old when they happened or whether it, whenever it happened, that all of those people actually do have physical lineage descendancy back to Abraham or back to Israel is that they already are a part of the family of God literally are a part of the family of God whether there's some connection there but all it was was there was a move of the Holy Spirit that stirred in their hearts to return to come back and that's what the work of the Holy Spirit can do in the that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in this time in this age since the Messiah died uh, 2,000 years ago the work of the Holy Spirit has moved throughout the entire world that has moved through the disciples, through all the people who have gone to minister to all the nations, being a light to the nations so that all people might be brought back and be gathered closer to God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, of course, connects to what Eliezer was doing with Rebecca. She's the bride of the promised son. That is who she is meant to be. That she is going to be gathered and she is going to be brought to be in the family of Abraham. To marry Isaac in this, in what would be a great and joyous feast. We're talking about, this is the promised son. This is the first son being born in the seed of Abraham. And that through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, so when Isaac's family begin, is formed, he gets married, he starts having children. This is going to be a joyous occasion. And so when the servant has come, brought the bride, gathered her, brought them close together, what an amazing, joyous occasion this would be. Such is the same that will be at the end of the age when the Holy Spirit has finished its work in gathering the bride of Christ, the bride of the Messiah from all the nations where it's been, Israel bringing, being brought together, being whole, being one once again so that they can be the bride to the Messiah. That's the whole work of the Holy Spirit, and that's what's going to happen. So this whole idea of Eliezer going and finding Rebecca is a huge prophecy and a parallel to everything the Holy Spirit is doing and has been doing for the last 2,000 years. To stir in the hearts of the people of God so that they could be gathered together to be the bride of the promised son. Let's skip ahead to uh, John chapter 15. And let's start at verse 5. This is, again, describing more about what this work of the Holy Spirit is as Yeshua is teaching us more about this manifestation of God, the Holy Spirit. But now I go away to him who sent me. 
and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they did not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, and he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The next couple of verses here starts talking about how sorrow will be turned to joy. The, 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 the uh, disciples start talking amongst one another and trying to figure out what in the world is the Messiah talking about here. That in a little while, the Messiah then said, in a little while you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. There, this, How are you going to go away? But we won't see you and then we will see you. And we're trying to understand this. And this whole idea, these, these men, these disciples were still wrapped up in this idea that their master, who they were following, was going to die. He was going to die. And there's this, this mourning that, that, that is, is coming over them that before anything has actually happened. But the, but the Messiah says this, recognizes this. And now let me read here at verse 19 of uh, John chapter, uh, I mean, sorry, John chapter 16 is where I am right now. Where he says this, now Yeshua knew that they were desiring to ask him and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say you say to you, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy may be full. This is that last little sort of capstone here where everything I said to you, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, all these things, we're, we're talking about all this joy that's, that's coming in the future. That doesn't mean that there won't be sorrow that we come across in our day-to-day lives. But God has said that the work of the Holy Spirit and all of these things that, that it is doing will turn any sorrow, any lament that we might have in our day-to-day lives, and it will be turned to joy. This is the word of encouragement that we must have in our day-to-day lives going into the world, and it is the encouragement that will be necessary for those that will go through tribulation before we see the return of the Lord, that there will be sorrow, there will be lament, there will be all of these things happening, but God will turn all of those things to joy when it comes that the, the fulfillment of all the work of the Holy Spirit, when the bride comes, when, just like it said, when the birth of a child, with all the pain that comes in child labor, 
And then when you finally see that life and you see the, and, and the joy that only comes from the power of God and the creation of life that comes. So I would pray that we would be comforted in all the things that we face, whether it's a day-to-day life. If there's anyone out there that's suffering at the loss of a loved one that happened recently, or if anyone is facing any other trials and tribulations and is sorrowful for what life they're having, the trials and tribulations they're facing and what they might be dealing with and what's in front of them. But may we always look to submit and know, look, the Messiah is not here anymore. We don't have a temple. We don't have sacrifices. We pretty much have our Bibles. We have our congregations. And we, if we're all we're looking at is the physical, then, then we might look around and say, well, that's pretty much all we got. But if we look at the spiritual, then we should know that the helper has come in the absence of the Messiah who has gone back to his father. The Holy Spirit is still there. He is called the comforter. He is called the helper. He is a servant of the most high God. He comes in the authority of God and does this work, the work of comforting, the work of regathering, the work of teaching us all the things that God has taught us. All of these words that have been spoken, the Messiah spoke these words that sorrow will become joy. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak that to you at this time and in your times of trials and tribulations. Your sorrow, your lament, your trial, your tribulation will become a season of joy, will become a time in which God has revealed himself to you and that you will be comforted no matter what you might face. Loss of a loved one, trials, struggles, tribulation, whatever life throws your way, the Lord can bring you comfort and is your helper through all of it. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For this time, this teaching, this instruction, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit, your servant, who convicts us of all things. And, Father, may it also convict the world of sin. And, Father, as it will be the thing that brings judgment and will teach us of righteousness, Lord, Father, may we submit to your Holy Spirit, Lord. May it inhabit our lives and may we work with the Holy Spirit, Lord. As we minister to one another, as we encourage one another, as we face trials, tribulations, as we face the world and whatever it throws at us, Lord, Father, I pray that you would just guide us with your Holy Spirit in all things, that you would comfort us in our time of mourning, in our time of stress and trials and tribulations. May your Holy Spirit overcome any other spirit that might afflict us, Lord, whether it be a spirit of fear, spirit of anxiety, a spirit of depression, Lord. Uh, Father, I pray that you would cast those spirits out in Yeshua's name. And Father, may it only be your Holy Spirit that dwells in the hearts of your people. We bless you and thank you on this Sabbath day for all the things you do for us. We give you all the honor, the glory, and praise in this place. It's in your son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.
לך Oh, 